back, beloved, to the riches of divine grace. If you have eternal life, you better know about it. If you have Christ, you want to know what that means, what God has done for you. So much of the New Testament is written for our understanding of our so great salvation, what we have already. As you read the epistles of the Apostle Paul and Peter and James and John, what you're constantly faced with is the truths of God's spiritual blessings for us. And as we come to understand them, as God opens our heart to understand these things, a constant appeal to gratitude. In Romans chapter 1, one of the hallmarks of unbelief for mankind, they didn't give thanks. Ingratitude, the soul of unbelief. And we all suffer from it at times because we're not thinking about what God has said. We're not remembering the things of God. We're very often challenged and hurting in the circumstances and the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune in our lives. We're, we're struggling through whatever the challenge is, looking at a room full of challenge. We're looking for a room full of people with various testings. In some cases, and I don't know who, perhaps divine discipline, saying get back on the path. In other cases, people running with the, with the baton down the path and God putting challenges in your way to train you and strengthen you as you trust him. But in all cases, we're facing hardship in this life. So much of the scripture is written in the New Testament to tell you what you already have and what that means about what's coming in the eternal state and your resurrection body and rulership with Jesus Christ and his eternal kingdom. And that is to elicit from us a vital, a vital consequence, which is gratitude. If you turn, uh, we're going to go to Ephesians 1, but first, let's go to um, Philippians chapter 4. I want to show you the power of thanksgiving not because it's November, but just because we're talking about the riches of grace. Philippians 4, you have what I call the emergency parachute or um, you know, the fail-safe, the emergency break, the thing that solves stuff in, in a crisis. I, I, I'm falling, and I don't know what to happen. Well, just pull your, pull your emergency chute. It'll catch you. It's Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. A place to memorize if you're interested in learning God's word, committing it to heart so that you'd have it treasured in your heart and not sin against him. If you want to really um, use God's word in your life, Philippians 4, 6, and 7 is a powerful place. The paragraph, uh, is one way to read it, starts in verse 4 where Paul commands joy from prison. The Apostle Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness, literally let your gentleness, be known to all men. The Lord is near. So the character of Christ shining through in us is to be known to all because of the gospel witness it portrays. You live the gospel and then you share the gospel. So let it be known to all men. And then verse 6 is sort of that emergency parachute, that thing that will catch you. But it's a procedure. There's a promise that follows from a command. And that, that makes a procedure that provides stability. He says, by way of command, be anxious for nothing. Not correctly translated. I once saw in a, um, I think not even my dad's Bible, he had written in the margin or in, in pen on the side, stop worrying about anything because he had been taught. And, you know, the pastor had said that means stop worrying. And the theory was it's a command in the present tense, so that means you're already doing it, so it's a command not to do it or to stop doing it. Well, that's not good grammar in actually, or syntax in Greek. That's not how the Greek works. You don't have a present command and a negation of a present tense doesn't mean you're already doing it. Although that's an interesting theory someone might have had. It means as a general principle, you're absolutely forbidden from it. 
present imperative negated is this is our, this is our marching orders, how we, how we live. And it does take you into the internals of your experience, but instead of saying you're already doing it and stop, it's saying don't do it. This is a prohibition. Don't do this. And the thing you're not supposed to do, listen to me, you uh, amateur or professional anthropologist, let's get God's view of the thing. Do not worry. The word is to worry or be anxious. I'm commanded not to. Well, just exactly how am I supposed to go about not worrying? Well, it'll begin with my conscience. God said not to do it, so now it's a prohibition. I'm supposed to not, or I'm not supposed to. See how that works? So I, I commit to that and say that's the standard. Now, okay, God, I commit to your standard. Don't worry. Now what? Well, he tells you. But in all things, by way of prayer, that's the general term for talking to God, and supplication, that's urgent specific requests. By way of open, he opens it, you're talking to God, so you're, you're being challenged. That It's a mental state that's a consequence of talking to God. I'm going to talk to him and make my urgent request about whatever I'm struggling with, whatever is the cause of the anxiety in context. But then there's that piece that hooks it all up to work. The thing that you, you and I forget when we're saying, help, or this hurts, or solve it, or whatever we're saying when we bring our urgent specific requests, with thanksgiving, with gratitude. For what can I rejoice at all times? Well, in the Lord, rejoice always. For what can I give thanks in the crisis when I'm hurting? For my walk with him, for his blessings, for what we're studying here, the riches of the divine grace. What I'm trying to do in this study in part is to fill out our prayer life in terms of what we're thankful for. When's the last time you thanked God for the Holy Spirit? When's the last time you said, you have put your third person, the Trinity, your Holy Spirit in my heart to seal me into the day of redemption? We don't think that way. But we should, be, we should be trained to. This is what biblical inculcation will do for us. With thanksgiving, you let your request be made known to God. That's good English translation. You let it be made known. You tell him what your, you air it out, what your, what your requests are. But it's with thanksgiving. And that is telling the whole thing. The, the partial thing is this hurts and you're letting it hurt. But the whole story is this hurts, you're letting that hurt, and I thank you for the blessings you've given me, for the promises you've given me, for the privilege to come before you right now, the access to your throne of grace through the blood of your son, all the things that we're studying. Thank you for these things. And if you're, uh, if you're orienting yourself to the circumstance, thank you for this stewardship of trouble. You're, you're giving me this to, look, to manage. Thank you for the privilege of trusting you through this. That's a, that's a mature statement. And you don't want to make it hypocritically, but that's what we're going for. Because we want the promise of verse 7. We want the procedure of verse 6 because we want the promise of verse 7. And the promise is that the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard, in like a military term, guard, garrison, protect in a defensive posture, your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Verse 4 started with rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Verse 7 concludes with being guarded, your heart and mind being guarded in Christ Jesus. Right? What's the alternative to the guarding of my soul, of my thinking, of my inner person, my inner life? The alternative is that my sin nature corrupts me by suggesting things that aren't true, and I believe them. 
The devil's world communicates things, and the Bible doesn't tell us how. But we get false ideas that we are deceived by, and we conclude, and we incorporate them into our view of reality. And we're off to the races with something that isn't true, with unreality, and we're deceived. We need our hearts and minds guarded in Christ Jesus, in part because as you're worried about something, it's because there's something bad. And as you're dealing with something bad and you start bringing the thoughts of God to it, you're starting to say things like, maybe God isn't good because he lets this happen. Maybe he's not there. Maybe it's not all true. There's all kinds of challenges that come to us in our moments of anxiety, and we're not supposed to go there. We're supposed to trust him and bring our request with thanksgiving for the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension. Maybe you're not in this moment right now. In such a case, this instruction will probably be valuable to you. Because when you are in the crisis, when you are in the thick of it, you can't imagine a peace that would surpass all comprehension. You're going to have to just take it on blind faith. I trust you, God. You provide this. But it is a promise that he offers. And I challenge you to consider it. For certain, we are commanded not to be worried, not to be anxious. What a, what a, what a condemnation of our feeble walk with him when we are all of us, when I, when you, when we are anxious about things that are lesser than God's so great salvation. And so that, this is intended to put things in perspective. The things we're studying that are true that you can't see, you couldn't reason, you had to have God reveal them in his word, line by line, thought by thought, proposition by proposition. These things, we want God to make them more real to us than the hardships we have with people, which covers most of it. The hardships we have with people, and, and the greatest troubles in life, but I repeat myself, and, and all the things. Uh, by way, by show of hands, um, who wants to talk about the uncomfortable family things that they're dealing with uh, right now? Oh, nobody. This is my favorite poll of the audience. Who wants to talk about the hardships that you're going to face uh, in the season of American celebrations when we have family get-togethers? Who wants to air out right now all the troubles they're having with various family members and how it's stressful and unthinkable? How, yeah, put your hand down. <laughs> I have often suggested that the, the Old Testament ends in Malachi 4 on what will happen when the forerunner comes in the spirit of Elijah that he will restore fathers' hearts to their sons and sons to their fathers. Because the household relationships are the toughest ones. The breakdowns that you have that cause you the most anxiety, and you're, like, you're, you're asking us to dig up troubles we're not even thinking about. You're about to face them. There are people that should be with you over Christmas and Thanksgiving stuff, and they won't be. There are people that will be with you, but they're not with you in their heart. They don't love you. They don't think like you. They don't love the things that you love. And, they, and, and I'm saying in such cases where they should there should be fellow feeling. There should be this communion, but there's not. And it breaks you. And all these separations are the worst things, the family, the personal family things. These are the kind of things that I'm challenging you. Uh, Philippians 4, 6, 7 can solve, can resolve for you. I mean, it doesn't fix that you, there's a problem. It fixes the way you handle it. You need to lift the weight that God has you lifting. And he provides the strength to do it. And this requires the word of God, which we have through the Holy Spirit. And one of the great riches of divine grace, perhaps the greatest, is that you have the third person of the Trinity, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God living in you. He lives in you. And we're going to talk about that today in terms of the riches of divine grace. You have, <clears throat> apparently, from the New Testament revelation, several ministries of the Spirit that cannot be lost. 
Big word is irrevocable. They cannot be revoked or taken away. The irrevocable works of the Spirit. Not like David who prays in Psalm 51 that God would not take his spirit from him. That's revocable. That early, uh, I'm sorry, Old Testament endowment work of the Spirit of God where the Spirit came to Saul and empowered him and then the Spirit left Saul. That, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about you as a believer in Christ in this age, this side of the day of Pentecost in 33 AD. You have several irrevocable ministries of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, what I'm saying is, as a, as a believer in Jesus from that very moment, you and I have forevermore several things. Now, as far as I know, there's only one ministry of the Spirit that is revocable or uh, contingent, where you're not supposed to not have it, but you and I will at times. There's only one thing that is, um, that is I might have it, I might not have it. And I believe the best way to describe it is the filling by means of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 5.18. Something that we're constantly commanded to receive. Something that is not an emotional state. It is not an ecstatic feeling. We all have our emotions and our ecstatics. But it is not that. It is the expression of the character of Christ through you, empowered by the Holy Spirit through his word. And that's something that's supposed to always be true of us. And we're apparently told by Ephesians 5.18, Ephesians 4.30, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, that we can forsake that work in us. And that's a big part of what we talk about here in terms of equipping the saints for the ministry of service. Abiding in Christ, the other side of the coin of the filling ministry of the Spirit, abiding in Christ is the only way your works matter to God. Because he says, if we don't abide in him, we can do nothing. The Lord Jesus' assessment of my works that are not from him working through me and the power of the Holy Spirit, they're nothing. They're dead works. And we don't want that. We don't want that wasted opportunity. So the first moment we believe in Christ, we are forevermore regenerated. This is said in the New Testament to be a work of God, the Holy Spirit, the new birth. And we've talked about it quite a bit, but it's a work of the Spirit. And you can't lose that regeneration work. Regenerated is to be born again. And the language is intentional. And God planned it from eternity past. He didn't say adopted again. He didn't say uh, fraternally arranged again. He said born again, something that cannot be undone. We are indwelled by the Spirit, and I'll show you several places in the New Testament that teach the indwelling ministry of the Spirit, something that the Bible says we cannot lose because it says he's indwelled us and therefore sealed us unto the day of redemption. We've been baptized into Christ by means of the Holy Spirit. This is the thing that the apostle, or sorry, that, that John the Baptist, not the apostle John, John the Baptist, the cousin of our Savior, because Hannah, uh, because Elizabeth, his mother, is uh, the cousin of Mary. John the Baptist said, there's one coming after me, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. It's the work of Christ through the Holy Spirit, baptizing you to himself, identifying you with the Savior. And this is what we understand to be the cause for the language of the Apostle Paul of in Christ. We are in union with Jesus Christ by virtue of this new work of the Spirit in this age. And you can check that out in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. You're baptized by the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting that so much of our pneumatology comes out of 1 Corinthians because that's punitive. It's a corrective letter with all the misunderstandings. You are sealed unto that day of redemption by the Holy Spirit, a ministry in which, uh, you, cannot, which you cannot lose. And that sealing is an interesting concept that has to do with the stamp or the identification, again, from baptism, but it's uh, forever marked, forever belonging to God through the Spirit. 
And there is no indication in the scriptures that you can lose a spiritual gift that the Lord Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, has given you uh, to be about his work. There's no indication in the word of God that we lose a spiritual gift. There is the rekindling the gift afresh, according to uh, 2 Timothy, that Paul has for Timothy. There is the failure to function in a mature way in your spiritual life so that you don't walk in the power of the Spirit through your gift. There is that. It's the, probably the norm because we're so hung up on um, the fancy. We want revelatory gifts instead of God's revelation in the Bible. And then the expression of the Spirit through that word that he's given us and the use of the continuing ex- extent spiritual gifts. And what are the gifts for? They're, they're expressions of love in the body of Christ for the building up of the body. But these ministries are by the Holy Spirit of God in you, and you cannot lose them. And they're a reason for you and me consistently, constantly to rejoice. Just take one of these out and think about what God means by saying you have the Holy Spirit in this sense. Therefore, we're recipients of the earnest of our inheritance in Christ, the Apostle Paul says. We're recipients of the earnest of our inheritance. You and I haven't received the fullness of the inheritance. Part of that package is the uh, resurrection body. You're all beautiful, but nobody's resurrected. Sinners, all of you, broken, sinful natures, dealing with the constant decay and death of this body. It's horrible. I mean, you're magnificent, but you're horrible. We're sinners. Nobody's resurrected yet, but Jesus, and that's coming. Our resurrection is, is coming, and it's described as part of our inheritance in 1 Corinthians 15. And so what I'm saying is that uh, we have a whole package of what God wants to give us because of our union with Christ. And it's mostly eternal state stuff. Some of it's now, like you have the Holy Spirit now, the earnest of the inheritance. Which takes me to, if you turn your Bible, please, to Ephesians chapter 1. where I'm going to read a long sentence, or the long sentence, and for some of you, it'll elicit more questions than give you answers. Because Paul is saying what it means that we have salvation in Christ. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, the longest sentence in the New Testament, is one sentence in the original language in Greek, broken into manageable, digestible English sentences, because we can't do those long sentences in English grammar. We just can't possibly. We have to put it in little Germanic chunks because that's how our language works. But in Greek, it's one sentence, and it starts with, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We start with a blessing of God the Father who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. There's a start for your devotion time. Father, I thank you for what the Apostle Paul said, that I have been blessed already with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. I don't fully grasp what that means. I I don't necessarily feel that way, but you've told me that through the Apostle Paul inspired by the Spirit of God. Just as he chose us, he the Father chose us in him, in the Son, before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. He chose us so that we would be presented perfect before him. Father, thank you for that destiny that I'm told I have. See, this is, the, this is actually on its own list of the riches of divine grace. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself 
So Jesus is the avenue through Jesus Christ by whom we become sons of God the Father. That's what that language means. You have this sonship. You are heirs with Christ. You are born again into the family of God according to the kind intention of his will. This is what the Father wanted for you, and so you have it. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. How do we have access to this grace gift? In the Lord Jesus, in the beloved. We have no access to the Father but through him. It's all about his coattails. You're not going independently, and I'm going to open up a separate channel of communication to God you know, Jesus is fine, but I'm, I'm going through my own separate channel. There is no other channel. The only access you have to God the Father in the throne room of grace is through the Son. In Him, we have redemption. That means to be purchased through His blood. We've talked about the benefits of the blood of Christ. One of these statements in the New Testament, what is the blood of Christ to us? It's our redemption, the purchase price for our salvation. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to the kind intention which he purposed in Christ. Making known to us the mystery of his will. The world has no idea. The human race in its rebellion against God and sinfulness and you know, the, the darkness of the heart of man and the deception of Satan and the veil over their hearts and all the problems that come about because of the darkness of our time, the, the phase of history that we're in, they have no idea, but it's a mystery. It's unknown. It's unrevealed, but he made it known to us. And this echoes second, or 1 Corinthians 2 and 3 about we have the things of God because he's revealed them to us through his spirit. And he wanted us to know these things. Do you ever pause to thank God for his revelation of himself to you? I want to get as deep and involved in the grammar and, and the syntax and the historical backgrounds. Historical backgrounds, that's isagogics. Grammatical context, what's actually happening in the syntax of the passage. I want to get into all that. Can we just... Skip to the consequence of all that for just a second. That you have an obligation to gratitude. An obligation to gratitude because of all this richness of the spiritual blessings God has lavished upon you. Including he's revealed himself in his plan. Maybe you're a believer in Christ and you've committed yourself, I want what God wants. Maybe you've said, and I want to find out what that is, and I believe it's in the word God has given me through the apostles and prophets of the Old and New Testaments. I, I believe that God's word is God's word, and I need to know it, and I'm going to grow. and I'm going to take it a little bite at a time and come to know. Maybe, that's, maybe you're choosing to disciple up that way. I'll be a student of God's son and get through his spirit what he wants me to know of himself. Maybe you're there. And maybe you're waiting for that urge that you're expecting to come at some point where you'll choose to love people as Christ has commanded you. Maybe you're waiting for that special impulse of the Holy Spirit so that you'll be grateful to God for all these things. Maybe you're waiting for um, 
the special personal call. I mean, I believe in Christ and I trust, I have eternal life and I'm in his word. I want to disciple up. And you're waiting for that special impulse where God tells you, here's what I want you to do for me. Or you feel this irresistible need to do something for God. I just don't know what it is. You're so close. May we summarize the New Testament? God is in a program before the coming kingdom of our Savior of recruiting those people who will rule with Christ in it. And that group of people in this age composed of Jew and Gentile is the church, the body of Christ, Jew and Gentile, and one new man, the church. Jesus Christ being the head and we being the body of Christ. That's the theology of who you are and what you're about. We are recruiting those who will join this body and recruit others. We are equipping the saints for that recruiting work. And as we go through our paces, as we trust him through the trials of this life, alongside this mission, he is strengthening us and equipping us for that role of rulership, which is our destiny. Let's, let's do the actual biblical view. You have been given the Holy Spirit for a purpose. He has given you a spiritual gift in the interest of that same purpose and is the building up of the body of Christ by recruitment and edification. That's the Great Commission. Don't fall short of why you have the Word of God. Don't fall short of why you have the Holy Spirit. It's been given to you as this infinite gift. So what will you do with it? You're not a reservoir. You're supposed to be a conduit of this blessing. This is supposed to so consume us, and maybe that's what you're waiting for, that you share because it's your life. And that's something you should definitely pray about. I contend, I've said many times, the greatest squandering of resources in world history is the church-age believer with the Holy Spirit who won't walk by the Spirit, who won't get with the Word of God, who won't recognize what God's Word says about your life, what it's for, what your choices are about, how to organize your resources. It's the greatest squandering. It's the greatest waste. And it's true of you and me as we walk according to the flesh and not by the Spirit. The challenge is thanksgiving because of the revelation of God in verse 9. And he gave us this revelation in verse 10 of Ephesians 1 with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end, the predestination is to the end, that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. What's your destiny? If you're going to follow the, the, the pattern of the Apostle Paul, imitate me as I imitate Christ, he says, then you're going to recognize, you're going to experience that your whole purpose is glory to God. You're here to glorify him. And this is not talking about how the wicked will be glorifying to God because his judgment will come down upon the wicked and righteousness will be served. That is a a form of glory to God. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about willing participation in God's eternal projects of uh, of glorifying himself, of, of magnifying the greatness of his righteousness and justice and love forever and ever. In Christ also, you who after hearing the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him, that's in Christ, with the Holy Spirit of promise. And verse 14, who is given as a pledge 
of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. The long sentence of Ephesians 1, read through. Just a few implications, a few thoughts about it. This is something to pattern your life's gratitude around. And it's, listen, everything we just read is something you would not necessarily think about unless you chose to. This is the power of God's word. This isn't on my mind that I have all this that God just revealed to me. He tells us. So we pull out that revelation and we think about it and we meditate on it. And we say, this is something God's been doing with us from eternity past. And he opens the curtain or reveals to us these things are true that we would never know if he hadn't told us. What do I do with this? Well, the first step is I believe. I meet God's word, his revelation with faith, and I trust him. And for some of us, at times, it's more of a choice than at others. Sometimes you feel convinced, and other times you choose to believe. And I wouldn't worry too much about the psychology of that. Faith is believing. And, and on that note, Christians, my view of apologetics, especially evidential uh, Classic apologetics. That's more about believers being strengthened in their faith than unbelievers being convinced to believe. I love apologetics. But I didn't come to Christ because I was convinced of the cosmological argument as a more satisfactory explanation of why there exists anything than the alternative. I mean, I feel that very deeply. I love that argument. That there is anything implies either infinite regression of impersonal cause in nature and in, in eternal nature and matter, or it, or it has to be a personal being who's always been there that made it. There has to be an uncaused cause of everything. I love this. To me, it seems very obvious that matter as eternal doesn't make sense, especially given what we know in physics and stuff. Even the Big Bang Theory, not the TV show, even the Big Bang Theory is, is a way of saying there had to be a beginning to the matter, to the, to the material. Now they say, no, no, the, the, the singularity that was before, that's the material. Where did it come from? The idea of there not being any cause to reality makes much less sense to me as a believer than the idea that somebody designed all this and made it so. I love that. It doesn't make me a Christian, but as a Christian, it's a great reinforcement to what I believe. And I, I need this. I need God's word. I need the implications of God's word every day. But these things that God tells us that we wouldn't know about his provision for us are designed for our gratitude. Can we zoom in a little bit as we close on Ephesians 1, 13 and 14? It says in the New American Standard, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise. So the Father has this ministry that he sends the Spirit to do through the Son that seals you to the Son, in the Son. And then that Holy Spirit of promise, that third person of the Trinity, is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. In verse 13, it says in the Greek, bringing it forward as best I can into English, in whom, and that's in Christ, you also. And then he has what we call kind of an anacoluth, and he he talks about how you got here. The, the, the conclusion in you, you also, you, you were sealed. But he's going to share about how you got sealed. After having heard the word of truth. Not before hearing. Eris participle precedes the action of the main verb. After hearing the word of truth. In, after hearing the word of truth, which is 
in, in a positive statement, in opposition to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, of your soteria, after hearing the word of truth, which is the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after believing, he grabs another, but aorist participle, after, not before believing, the spirit isn't working in this ministry before belief, it's after faith. And so people want to say you're fully regenerated and, you know, child of God, and then you believe. Not in this verse, after you heard, which I don't, I don't doubt the Holy Spirit helps you hear. And after believing, in whom Christ also after believing, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. Esphragizo. I can never go from the, from the contextual form to the lexical form in Greek because I'm always teaching Hebrew. You were sealed. This concept of sealing is an, is an irrevocable stamp of ownership. It's belonging. It's the signature. And it is by the Holy Spirit of promise. This is one of these irrevocable ministries of the Spirit. One thing that comes out from this is these things happen after you believed, after hearing the word. So I heard the word, I believed it, and then God sealed me into Christ by the Holy Spirit of promise. How is that part of promise? Because in the ministry of the Lord Jesus, the Spirit was promised. In the new covenant promises for God's promise to Israel, there is this promise of the Holy Spirit. But verse 14 is, I think, something that should occupy our thanksgiving a lot. The Holy Spirit is the arabon, the first installment, the down payment, the earnest of the kleronomia, of the inheritance. What does it mean that he is the first installment, the down payment, in realtor terms, the earnest money of the inheritance? It's the token that says there's more coming. Hold this line. Eventually, the whole thing is going to come and it's connected to it. And you're going to get all of it. This is the, the, the amazing thing about the fact that you and I have the Holy Spirit is that this greatest gift, this greatest thing God has ever done for us is the beginning and proof of what God is going to do with us forever. This is unknown in the body of Christ. It's untaught. As soon as you talk about the Holy Spirit, in a popular Christian context, people want to say, well, what do the charismatics say? What are the people that really have this feeling? And then we are off to the races with something besides the Bible. But here, he says that the gift of the Spirit in you is the beginning of the, of the fullness of God's inheritance package. It's an eternal thing. And so it's, I'm in a physical body dying every day. We're in this problem of personal sin connected somehow to this body. Why do we sin? Because we feel like it, right? We're stuck in this life and we're not thinking about the things of eternity. We're stuck with people and stuff and circumstances and Thanksgiving dinners and, and the, the, the details of life. And what God's word says is it breaks through and resets my values is that the presence of the spirit in me is evidence of an eternal package of inheritance blessing that I can't even begin to fathom. Paul asks the disciples of John the Baptist, do you have the Holy Spirit? We don't know whether there is a Holy Spirit. And then he baptizes them in the name of Christ because the baptism of John was not the baptism of Christ. These men, these disciples of John in Ephesus, and they received the Holy Spirit. We're kind of like fish. 
in the aquarium and the facts of God's blessing for us that we have the Spirit of God in us is kind of like the water we're swimming in, if you will. It's just, yeah, yeah, we got the Holy Spirit. But it's the beginning of our inheritance. In what way? He doesn't say. I have a theory. I put this verse together with the statement Jesus made about why he was giving the Holy Spirit. We have it in Luke 24 and Acts chapter 1. I'll just go there real quick. Same writer, the apostle, or Luke, um, prophetically writing under the aegis of the Apostle Paul. All right. We'll just grab verse 46 of Luke 24. Jesus said to them, Thus it's written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, that the repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. So now we're going out of the gospel to the king, of the kingdom to Israel to all the nations. Big move in all the gospels. You're witnesses of these things. You are witnesses. Listen to it. Marturion, you're witnesses. And behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. You're to stay in the city until you're clothed with presence, with, with power from on high. And then he ascends. The last words of Jesus in Luke. And if you compare that with the last words of Jesus in the companion volume, Luke part two, which is the book of Acts, he says, it's not for you to know in Acts 1, 7, the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. The promise of the Father to be witnesses in Luke 24 is the same as the giving of the Holy Spirit to be witnesses in Acts 1 in Jerusalem and Judea, all Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Why did the believers in Jesus who received the Holy Spirit, the next chapter in Acts 2, and therefore became the church, these Jewish believers in Christ who received the Holy Spirit were made part of the body of Christ, that we are now part of this body as one new man in Christ, Jew and Gentile. Why did these men receive the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father? Because they needed power to be his witnesses throughout the earth. The giving of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost to the body of Christ is not just so that we have a nice thing that God gave us. The Spirit of God is in us to make us capable to be about his work. And when you put that idea of why did God give the Spirit to the church in Acts 1 and uh, Luke 24, you can put that together with Ephesians 1, that he's the down payment of the inheritance the beginning of the gift of the inheritance. I contend that your inheritance has things that are certain and things that are in question. There are, there are paragraphs in the inheritance package the Bible calls rewards. And the rewards are the consequence in 1 Corinthians 3 of what you build on, how you do the work God has given you to do. In Colossians 3.24, slaves in the Christ and the power of the Spirit are told to work for the Lord in His power not with eye service as men pleasers, because they're serving God as their master so that they could receive the reward, the misthos of the inheritance, kleronomia, 
your service to God in the power of the Spirit is part of how God brings about this inheritance package he wants to give you. Without me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. Um, Some people don't like me connecting inheritance to rewards because they say, well, the rewards are contingent and inheritance is certain. And I would say, well, part of what God calls inheritance is reward. So some of the inheritance is certain and some of it's contingent. And it's just that complicated and no more complicated. So the, the beginning of your inheritance, God promises all of it, including the part that he wants to give you in reward as you walk by the Spirit. And why is he the earnest of our inheritance? Unto the redemption of God's possession, unto the praise of his glory. What is reward? What is inheritance? What is blessing? What is all that God has done for you for? What's the purpose of it? It's for the praise of God's glory, which means that daily you and I have to come to some reality about who we are and what we're for. We're not here for our own glory. We're here for God's glory. And if we operate otherwise, we're functioning contrary to our design. And I think the scriptures are pretty clear, guaranteed to suffer unnecessarily. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, we dedicate the closing moments this morning to anyone who may be in the hearing of my voice. We're not going to walk an aisle or raise a hand. We won't light any candles, although that's always nice. But the question is, have you trusted in Christ as your Savior? We bow heads and close eyes, not because yet I'm praying to God specifically, but because this is an issue between you and God. I'm going to give you the opportunity and the privacy of your soul. Nobody's looking at you. Nobody better be. To consider what have you done with the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The Apostle John gave us all these miracles of Jesus and said, these signs have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that's the Messiah of Israel, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. And then he said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. No one here is your judge with regard to these things, except you. What have you done with the message of the gospel? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Father, we thank you for the eternal life that's ours because of the work of Christ, for the privilege we've had to think about these things. It is eternal life to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. As we think about the blessings that you've given us, the the, the storehouse of treasure that that belongs to each and every one of us, I pray that these things would be real to us, as Paul prays in Ephesians 1 that we would marvel at your grace to us, that we would be characterized by it, we would be exponents of that grace to others. Father, that these things would be more real to us than the challenges we face, and thereby we'd be strengthened to face them. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. And we all said, Amen. Amen.